كويس بس Good to be with you again this afternoon, and we're certainly thankful for this another opportunity we have as God's children to come together at this time to engage in this period of worship to remind ourselves of the blessing we have of being God's children, of the inheritance for the saints in light, lifting up our hearts before His throne in heaven. I think that everyone loves the story of the underdog. I believe it was 40 years ago this summer, the movie Rocky came out. And maybe you remember Rocky, Rocky Balboa, and the fighter that takes on Apollo Creed, and against all odds, he wins. Or maybe the year after that, Star Wars comes out, and we have the, the one group with Luke Skywalker against the, the Empire, and how they end up winning. And so, down throughout history, there are always these stories of the one who shouldn't win against the one who's supposed to win. So, you know, last night, Penn State people are rejoicing because they ended up beating Ohio State, who they should not have beaten. They should not have beaten Ohio State, but they did. And things like that happen throughout life. And in some respects, we, we feel a sense of, I don't want to necessarily say happiness, but we feel lifted up because we recognize that when, you know, the little guy defeats the big guy, the unexpected happens. That tells us that the future is not known. No matter what we think is going to happen, it's not always that way. And so we can't necessarily use the past to predict our own future because the future is not ours to predict. The future, in effect, belongs to God. And so when these things happen, these situations as they unfold, they provide hope for us. They make us aware of the fact that anything is possible. And probably no story, especially in the Bible, makes us aware of this concept of the little guy, makes us aware of the story of the underdog, makes us aware of the prospect that anything is possible as the story of David dealing with Goliath. And so we want to deal with that today, and we want to deal with it from the standpoint of asking a question, how do you slay a giant? How do you go about bringing down a giant? And we want to begin our lesson by going all the way back to dealing with a story that I believe you're very familiar with. And so I'd ask you to go ahead and follow along with me, and hopefully I'm going to fill some things in that maybe you hadn't seen before, or look at some things from a different perspective, so that we can use this story and make an application in our own life. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, and I'm reading from the King James Version, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines gathered together their armies to battle and were gathered together at Shukoth, which belongeth to Judah, and pitched between Shukoth and Azekah in Ephes Damon. And Saul, the men of Israel, were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah, and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on a mountain on one side, and Israelites stood on a mountain on the other side, and there was a valley between them. So God is providing in this narrative 
these two armies literally facing each other. There's a valley between them. The Philistines are on one side on one mountain and the nation of Israel. So they both are standing, uh, from a military standpoint, they both have the high ground. No one is in a weaker position. They're looking across at each other. And it says, There went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, I don't do any woodworking. We do have one of our elders who's a carpenter. I'm fairly certain he does not measure things in cubits. So we have to take a measurement from antiquity, and we have to do the best job we can of relating it to today. So I know in, in my uh, column that I have here that gives me little footnotes, it says that Six cubits and a span is about nine and three-quarter feet. I don't know anybody nine feet. I don't know anybody eight feet. I know that there are some seven-foot people because they tell me that on TV when they're talking about these NBA players, that this guy's seven feet, this guy's seven-one. And so when you see even a seven-foot person, you're seeing someone that it's just not normal. It's not normal to see someone. You know, the, the average height for a guy is about six feet, six feet one. So when you see someone that's six five, and, and I'm six two, my son is almost six four. You know, it's hard for me to think of my son as being taller than me. But when I look at him, I, I gotta look up, you know. Of course, I come in today and, and I meet someone like Jake and I'm looking up and I'm thinking, I'm reminded of the fact that, you know, where I'm at, no one's bigger than me. So now I come someplace else and already a couple of people are bigger than me. But that's just, what are you, Jake? Are you six five, six six, six four. Okay, so you're about the same size as Brian. So now, if you were to take Jake at six four, and you put him up against Goliath at nine and three quarters, he's a shrimp. So that's how big Goliath is. Now, imagine also that Goliath is not just tall. He is going to be filled out. He's not just going to be some skinny rail guy who's tall. He's going to be a big, big guy. And the reason we know that is because the next verse, verse 5, tells us what he is wearing. He had a helmet of brass upon his head. He was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of brass. So again, the measurement is 180 pounds. Now, I, I don't think I know exactly what my suit would weigh, but if I were to weigh my shoes, my suit, my belt, my jacket, my shirt, all that stuff like that, Maybe I could come up with seven pounds. Maybe I could come up with eight pounds if I have a belt that's got a buckle on it, you know. Let's say, let's be generous. Ten pounds of clothing. How many people here think you could walk around with 180 pounds, not of a nicely fit suit or dress or slacks, or, but you've got armor on. Armor made in such a way that you're going to have to be able to move your arms and legs. 180 pounds. So you know this guy. He's huge. And what God is telling us is their champion is not someone to be dismissed. Then he, his staff of his spear was like a weaver's beam. His spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. So that tells us the head of the spear alone was 20 some odd pounds. One bearing a shield went before him. So he's got a shield. He's got a guy who's carrying his shield. He's big enough that he has a man to carry his shield. And he stood and he cried out to the armies of Israel and said unto them, Why are you come out to set your battle in array? 
Am not I a Philistine, and ye the servants of Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, and shall be your servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. So, so this guy comes out and he says, here's my challenge. Mono e mono. Me as the champion against your champion. And it's a winner take all. There are not many people that want the winner-take-all. You know, I remember when I was a boy, and I remember uh, Bobby Fischer playing Boris Spassky when chess began to be uh, talked about because we had a champion that could take on their champion. And so the local PBS station, WGBH in Boston, was showing uh, live action. And we're talking about a chess game. When I say action, I'm being... I'm being uh, metaphysical here, not being literal, because there's really no action in chess. But here they are, they're sitting there, and it's Bobby Fischer, and it's Boris Spassky, and it's moments of dullness, followed by one move that everybody scratches their head. But it was something that was our champion against their champion. Winner take all. Bobby Fischer won. Wow. And I became the captain of my chess club. That was my sporting experience in high school. You don't put that on your resume. You don't, you know. But it was just that idea of a contest, a big contest with the winner take off. So that's what Goliath is saying. Goliath is saying, I come out, I fight your champion. He wins, we're your servants. I win, you're our servants. So the two armies are standing opposite one another. And Goliath is this massive, hulking guy who is just towering over everybody. And he's made this incredible challenge. And he openly defies God's army. What is the response of the hand-picked king of Israel? Verse 11, when Saul and all the Philistines heard those words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This already tells you it's not looking good. Here we have a situation where the people of God are afraid of this enemy who openly defies God. And all we can think of is how shameful that is. They had forgotten what God, in effect, had done for them and how it was that God had already given them the victory. You go back to 1 Samuel chapter 12. And it says in verse 6 that Samuel said unto the people, It is the Lord that advanced Moses and Aaron that brought your fathers up out of the land of Egypt. Now therefore stand still that I may reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord which He did to you and your fathers. So they've already had this speech. They've already had this speech where Samuel said, Remember, God defeated Pharaoh. He defeated Egypt. And He had Moses to lead you out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. Don't forget that. And now, here they are, they're having to face Goliath, and what have they done? They've forgotten it. Because they're dismayed, they're upset, they're, they're afraid of, of what it is that they're going to have to deal with. Saul was God's giant. We go back to chapter 8, and when we have a description that is presented to us in thinking about who Saul is, in chapter 8, verse 22, at the beginning of chapter 8, 
we have the situation where Israel wanted a king. Verse 5, They said unto Samuel, Behold, thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. So what they've said to Samuel is, You're old. You can't do the job anymore. We don't like your kids. We want you to leave. We want you to get out of the way. We want you to handpick someone else. And we want that person to be our king. We want that person to be like the nations round about. So verse 22, the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, go ye every man unto his city. So the period of time is going to pass now. Everybody's going home to get ready because God's going to select a king. Chapter 9. Now there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Bechorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a mighty man of power. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, a goodly. And there was none among the children of Israel goodly a person than he. From his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. So God is saying from here on up, Saul was the biggest guy around. So they said, we want a king. And God said, I'm going to give you the king. I'm going to choose the way man chooses. I'm going to choose the biggest guy that you all have, and he's going to be your king. And so he'll go in front of you. He'll wear his armor. You'll be able to see him wherever you're at in your battle. You can look, and Saul will be head and shoulders above everybody else. So that's who they selected. The problem was that although Saul was a big guy, they got a giant, they got a large man, but his heart did not match his size. And so we have a situation in chapter 10, beginning in verse 19, he says, And you have this day rejected your God, who himself served you out of all your adversities and your tribulation. You have said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And when Samuel had caused all the tribes of Israel to come near, the tribe of Benjamin was taken. And when he caused the tribe of Benjamin to come near to their families, the family of Matri was taken. And Saul, the son of Kish, was taken. And when they sought him, him, he could not be found. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further, if the man should yet come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. And they ran and fetched him thence. And when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders and upwards. And Samuel said to the people, See, see ye him whom the Lord hath chosen, that there is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted and said, God save the king. So when God calls Saul, what does Saul do? He goes and he hides. Because that's what men do when they're faced with a large challenge. They, they shrink away. It says he, he's hidden among the stuff, my version says, his baggage. So he's gone and he's hidden himself somewhere where no one can find him. So God is calling him and he goes to hide. Does that remind you of anybody? There's another guy that does that, that uh, provides many lessons for us, but God calls him and he goes and he hides. So that, it's not looking well, is it? Here we have the image of God leading His people, and now the people have said, well, we just don't want that anymore. We want someone that we can look up to. And so God said, I'll give you someone to look up to. And the first time they're looking for Him, they can't find Him because He's hiding Himself. So it's not a good situation. Now, we have contrasted against that David. David is not like Saul in any way, shape, or form. 
And so in, in looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 1, the Lord said to Samuel, How long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thine horn with all oil and go. I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among the sons. So we have a situation that Samuel is feeling this sense of rejection because he's gone, he's selected Saul, the people have rejected him, the people have rejected his sons, he knows that he's soon going to be leaving, he's going to be dying, and now Saul has made a, just a miserable situation worse. And so Samuel is grieving over this. Samuel is crying over it because Saul is not a good king. And what does God say to him? He says, hitch up your pants, get up i got a job for you to do. Remember what we talked about this morning? Remember we talked about seeking the peace of the city? And we, we talked about we've got to put some of these things behind us. God's provided that message in any number of ways, and He's saying it to Samuel. He's saying, Samuel, you're not done yet, and don't worry about this situation. You've grieved long enough with, with respect to Saul. Put that behind you. I need you to go, and I need you to go to the house of Jesse the Bethlehemite. I've provided me a king among his sons. So he goes, and in verse 6 it says, They came to pass when they were come that he looked on Eliab and said, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So here's Samuel. He's making the same mistake that the people of Israel made because he's looking at the oldest son and he's thinking, Well, if I were going to choose someone, that's who I'd choose. And God says to him in verse 7, He says, Look, uh, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I've refused him. For the Lord seeketh not as man seeth, but for man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. So God tells us, He chooses people differently. He's not impressed with the way we look. He's not impressed with the way we dress. He's not impressed with the way everybody thinks about us. Man is impressed with all of those things. Man always thinks the biggest and the brightest and, and the most well-off, that's the person, and God says, that's not the way I choose. I don't choose people because I can see into a person's heart. When he chose Saul, he knew this is a guy whose heart was weak and who's not going to do what needs to be done. But that's what the people were. They wanted someone just like the nations round about. So they got a weak-willed man who could not do what needed to be done. So now God is going to choose someone from among them whose heart the Lord knows. Verse 11, Samuel said unto Jesse, now, now Samuel's gone through looking at all the sons, and so in verse 11, Samuel says to Jesse, Are here all thy children? And he said, Very many yet the youngest, and behold, he keepeth the sheep. And Samuel said unto Jesse, Send and fetch him, for he will not, we will not sit down till he come hither. And he sent and brought him. Now he was ruddy and withal of a beautiful countenance and goodly to look at. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. And verse 13 says, Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brethren, and the Spirit of the Lord came upon David from that day forward. So Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. I think the description of David is that he's just very fair. He's just a, he's a young guy. He doesn't have that muscular build possibly that, that his brothers do. He doesn't have that, you know, uh, mature look about him. He's young and he's very fair and, and, and in some respects very, very pretty to look at. So you're not thinking, this is our champion. You're not thinking, you know, Rocky Balboa is all, you know, beat up. He's got the scars to prove that he could do it. You wouldn't send a guy out who'd never fought before. But that's in effect what God is saying. God's saying, this is the one I want. This is the guy that I want to be my champion, 
to, to be let out. So, he's small, a ruddy youth, not a soldier. He's never fought before. When we find him, he's tending sheep. Who am I going to send out against this giant? Well, I've got this little fellow over here, and he's out playing with the sheep. We'll do that. That wouldn't make, that wouldn't make for, a, for a great contest, would it? When called, he comes. So there's a big difference already. There's a huge difference in, in what we see in David versus Saul. Saul's called, he goes and hides. David's called, he comes. Isn't that what God wants? Isn't that just the simplest of all lessons? God calls, I come. When we find Samuel, how does the story of Samuel unfold when he's with Eli? He's hearing the voice and he keeps coming to Eli and Eli realizes, it's not me, it's the Lord. And so he says, the next time you hear that, say, here I am, Lord. And he comes. That's what God wants in his people. It's a really simple message. I call you, come. When we talk about what is faith, faith cometh by hearing, hearing the word of God. I do what the Lord says because he tells me. Abraham went because God told him to go. I hear, I do. He hears, he comes. When we look at David's character, we note a certain type of individual. And the situation as it unfolds, going back to 1 Samuel chapter 17, now that we've gotten the background information in dealing with Saul and Saul's weakness of character and dealing with David and David being selected, we find that David is now inquiring about what's going on. So we jump back into chapter 17 to pick up the narrative. And what we find in looking at verse 17... As Jesse said unto David, his son, Take now for thy brethren an ephah of this parched corn in these ten loaves, and run to camp to thy brethren. Carry these ten cheeses unto the captain of their thousand, and look how thy brethren fare, and take their pledge. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and, the left, and left the sheep with the keeper, and took and went as Jesse had commanded him, and he came to the trench, and the host was going forth to fight, and shouted for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle in array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper and of the carriage, and ran to the army, and came and saluted his brethren. So his father says to him, I've got a job for you to do. I need you to go, and I need you to take this food to your brothers. Now, he's been anointed already. Samuel's anointed him. And now his father, in effect, is saying, okay, maybe you're anointed king, but i got work for you to do. Your brothers are going to go off, and they're going to fight, and I need you to take this food to them. That doesn't sound very exciting, does it? You know, if someone says, I need you to help in this very important battle. Yes, sir, what am I going to do? Take these lunches to all the soldiers, if you don't mind. No, that's not what we want to hear. We want to say, yeah, I want to get involved in that battle. You know, sometimes the battle that we're involved in is a battle of support. Sometimes the battle that we're involved in is we're not in the trenches. Sometimes the battle that we're involved in is we support others. We hold their hands up. We, we help them when they get weak. We counsel them. We're doing things that are behind the scenes that are just as important as the man who is in the very battle itself. And so David, I think, understands that concept. He's not saying, hey, wait a minute. That prophet just anointed me king. Kings don't take food out. His father says, David, I need you to go and do this. Yes, sir. I'm going to leave the sheep. I'm going to go take my brother. And then he even says, take their pledge. Find out how they're doing. And I want you to bring that message back to me. 
So David's the type of individual who's willing to do what he's asked to do. So then his brothers chastise him and he comes and uh, he hears the whole story. And in verse 26 of 1 Samuel 17, David spake to the men and stood by them saying, What shall be done to the man that killeth this Philistine and taketh away the reproach from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him after this manner saying, So shall it be done to the man that killeth him. And Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spake unto the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why comest thou down hither? And with whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart. Thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle. And David said, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned from him to another, toward another and spake the same manner. And the people answered him again after the former manner. And when the words were heard which David spake, they rehearsed them before Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Thou art not able to go up against the Philistine to fight with him. Thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said unto Saul, Thy servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him, and smote him, and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he rose up against me, I caught him by his beard, and I smote him, and slew him. And thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said unto David, Go, and the Lord be with you. So we find in looking at David's character, he's obedient to his father. He still knows his place. He may have been anointed king, but he's still the youngest son. And he knows, dad's telling me i got to do something, I'm going to do it. He cares for his brethren because he says, go and you get their pledge. You go find out who they are. You go find out how they're doing. He's obedient to the Lord. In verse 29 he said, is there not a cause? Are we going to let God's work be left aside? Are we going to reject the challenge of this particular Philistine? He trusts the Lord. He says, let me go and fight. Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. I can't imagine a more cringing situation for all these soldiers, these men of war. And here's this little guy coming in and he says, I can do it. Let me go. Let me at him. Because they're all like, no, we, we don't want to do this. You know, it's, it's winner take all and we're just not, we're not willing, we're not ready to get involved in that particular fight. But he knows the power of the Lord. In effect, I think what David is saying is, is this guy a lion? Is this guy a bear? I fought with lions. I mean, what kind of a person? I've never met anybody that fought with lions and fought with bears. I've met people that have fought with other people. But he says, I killed a bear. Or maybe as Alvin York said, killed a bar. I killed a bear. I killed a lion. And you know how I did that? I didn't do it by myself. The Lord. The Lord was with me. The Lord helped me to kill the lion, the Lord helped me to kill the bear, and the Lord's going to help me to kill this guy. And, and I don't know if Saul is just so impressed with his speech, or if Saul is just so shamed, because he says, go, and the Lord be with you. 
David understood that with God, I can do great things. The future's not written, but he who writes the future is my Father. We find then that the real contest is not between Saul and Goliath. The real contrast and the real contest is a big man with a small heart and a small boy with a godly heart. Size has never been important with God. Something small has never been important with God. The God of the universe created everything with His Word. There were no building blocks. There was no chemistry set. God just said and it was. So size has never been important to God. And an individual and what they think they may do and what they think they can do is dramatically changed when they put themselves in the hand of God to let Him mold them and use them the way that will honor and glorify Him. And so we have the situation that unfolds with David standing up to Goliath. And again, it's, it, it's incredible to think about this situation because when you look at 1 Samuel 17, beginning in verse 38, it said, Saul armed David with his armor. He put on a helmet of brass upon his head. Also he armed him with a coat of mail and David girded his sword upon his armor and essayed to go for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these. I've not proved them. And David put them off him. Now, I don't know, you know, was it actually Saul's armor? Because that would have looked ridiculous on David. You know, he wouldn't be able to move wearing Saul's armor. And so I suspect that it was a situation where Saul chose this armor and was honoring David and gave him this armor. But David said, I'm not a soldier. I respect the soldiers. I've not proved myself in war. I am not going to wear the armor that has been given me. And so it says he took it off. And then verse 40, he took his staff in his hand and chose him five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a shepherd's bag, which he had even a script and a sling was in his hand and he drew near to the Philistine. So can you get this picture in your mind? Here's this massive guy. He is just, you know, he's just filled with all this armor and his armor is so big. He's got another guy to hold his shield. So he's out there. He's standing and then here comes David. He just kind of walks up. He's got his little sling and he's got his little pouch and he's got his little staff. And you can imagine that, you know, Goliath's looking at him and he's going, oh, good, hors d'oeuvres. Because David is not going to be any match in thinking about Goliath. And so verse 41 says, The Philistine came on and drew near unto David, and the man that bare the shield went before him. Now I wonder, was the man who bore the shield bigger than David? And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him. For he was but a youth and ruddy and of fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog, that thou comest to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, Come to me, I'm going to give thy flesh unto the fowls of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then said David to the Philistine. Now, again, here's the picture. This big guy, he's saying, I'm going to tear you up and I'm going to throw your body to the fowls of the air. And you know he meant it. And you know he could do it. You know, I've met some big people in my life, and there have been some people I've been afraid of. I don't know what it would be like to, to meet a giant like that. But his threat is a real threat. He's angry. This big, brutish man is angry. And he says, David, I'm going to tear you up, and I'm going to throw your flesh to the fowls of the air. And David's response in verse 45 was, Thou comest to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to thee in the name of the Lord of the hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom thou hast defied. This day 
will the Lord deliver thee unto mine hand. And I will smite thee and take thine head from thee, and I will give the carcasses of the host of the Philistines this day unto the fowls of the air, and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. And all this assembly shall know that the Lord saveth not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and He will give you into our hands. And it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh to meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took thence a stone and slang it and smote the Philistine in his forehead that the stone sunk into his forehead and he fell on his face to the earth. So David prevailed with the Philistine with a sling with a stone and smote the Philistine and slew him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. So we have the situation. He refuses Saul's armor. He chooses the five stones from the brook. He's not frightened by Goliath. And again... David obviously was a man of courage to stand up against this giant. He uses unconventional weapons. And, and there might be a key in, in looking at that. He's got all this armor, and he's going to have to wield this armor, and he may be slow in doing it. David doesn't have any armor. David could be fast. He's got the sling. He's got the stone. You know, he can thr- throw a couple of those things. Up. I remember when I was about 15 years old, I had a cousin of my dad's had been working in Spain as a contractor for some uh, business down there. And he was down there for about a year. And whatever the business, whatever the construction was, he was successful in that. And the people that he was working for were very well off. And they gave him a sword. And the sword was five feet tall. And it weighed like about 100 pounds. And I remember him showing it to me. And I was about 15 at the time. I was really impressed with that. You know how young men are always impressed with swords and guns and stuff. And I just thought, someone supposedly wielded that with one hand. One hand. That was huge. But you know, when you move stuff like that, it's not easy to move it. You get one swipe, and then it takes you time to get it back. It's quite possible in the meantime, David could have, if, if it were necessary, flung another stone, flung another stone. So he's using unconventional weapons. Of course, the greatest weapon that he had in thinking about all those things is he knew the battle's the Lord's. God's going to determine who wins. God's already determined who's won. God knows the victor from the loser before the battle starts. We find that David's victory encourages all of Israel. Verse 51, David ran and stood upon the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath thereof and slew him and cut off his head therewith. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until they come to the valley to the gates of Ekron. And the, and the wounded of the Philistines fell down by the way of Sha'araim, Sha'araim, even unto Gath and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing under the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. So this goes off, and it becomes a great victory, because they realized we can defeat. We can defeat the Philistines. And David never forgot his place, because verse 58 said, Saul said unto him, Whose son art thou, young man? And David answered, I am the son of thy servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. He didn't say, I'm the guy who's going to take your job. He said, I'm the son of your servant. I'm the servant of your servant. I'm someone, in effect, who serves you. Well, in looking at this lesson, we, we titled this lesson, How Do You Slay a Giant? So we want to think about how, how can we defeat giants? You know, we've got problems in our life that seem insurmountable to us. Well, I'd suggest that the first thing you do is you begin small. Because that's what God did. God said, you want to be successful, you start small. And I think what that simply means is you do the things that are easy to do first. You're not going to be able to tackle the big jobs until you tackle the small jobs. So someone asked the question, how do you eat an elephant? 
getting beyond the fact that anybody would even want to eat an elephant. How do you need an, eat an elephant? It's a simple answer. One bite at a time. And so what is God saying? God said, you want to defeat, you, you want to overcome these great obstacles? You're going to start small. And so we look at what, what Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 6 and in verse 13. He said, there's something that's real simple that you need to do and you need to start with that. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. They were worrying about what are we going to eat? What are we going to wear? What are we going to do? He's waiting. Wait, 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 wait. Start with the small thing, the first thing. You seek the kingdom of God. You get that right, and all these other things are going to take care of themselves. So God is telling us, begin with the small things. If you can do the small things, then you learn, in effect, how to do the big things. So David said, I was a shepherd. And maybe you don't think about it, but being a shepherd was perfect for leading people. Because God called his people my sheep. In fact, later on, when David sins and God sends a plague among the people, David petitions God and he says, don't, you know, don't destroy these thy sheep because of what I've done. So when you think about the concept of being a shepherd, you have to get people in line. You've got to work with a whole bunch of people. Sometimes people want to go in different directions. You've got to learn how to do all these things. Well, that's what you're dealing with with people. Everybody's got a different mind of where they want to go. And God's saying, I need my people to go in a particular direction. I don't think it's any mistake that God refers to elders as shepherds. So David already had some experience in doing something small that was going to help him do something big. You obey authority. He did what Samuel told him to do. He did what his dad told him to do. He did what God told him to do. There were people that were over him, and he understood the concept that authority means I have to obey. That's my role. I submit in, in, in dealing with the concept of being obedient and looking at what Paul uh, mentions to Titus in talking about uh, the concept Titus chapter 3 and in verse 1, he said, Put them in mind to be subject to principalities and powers, to obey magistrates, to be ready to every good work. So that's part of our role. Whether we're talking about elders, whether we're talking about those within the church, or whether we're talking about a family structure, whether we're talking about citizenship. God's provided for these elements of authority within the home, within the church, within our citizenship and so our role is to go ahead and obey, to, to be obedient, because ultimately it reflects upon God. We need to know that there's a cause, that there's a purpose for my being here, that there's not a single individual as a child of God who is insignificant. It's not about what I can't do that others are doing. It's what about what I can do. What's the little thing that I can do? And it may be that I'm the type of person who encourages people. We need encouragers, you know? We need people who are positive. The balance of youth and the balance of maturity is dealing with those who think that no job is too big versus those who experience no some jobs need to be left alone. And you balance them out. We need the exuberance of youth. We need the positiveness of youth. And we need that measured against the experience of maturity so that both can work together. I don't know if it was Winston Churchill that first came up with this, but he said, when I was a young man, I was a liberal. When I became an old man, I became conservative. And I think I understand what he meant by that, in that when you're young, 
You want to do everything, and you're excited to do everything. But as you get old, you realize, not only can I not do everything, but there are other people that I need to help me to do some of the things I need to do. So I've got to kind of step back. So you balance those things out. Know that there's a cause, and know that I have a part to play in it, and sometimes my part is the part of supporting others. Use prior experience. What background skills do you have? You know, when we want to go to a job, we put together something called a resume so that we can give to the person who's hiring us and say, here's all the experience I have. Okay, so now we're involved in the Lord's work. What experience do I have? Am I a writer? Am I a speaker? Am I someone who's good at getting other people? You know, I've been places where someone couldn't talk to their friend, but they could get them to me. You know, I, I can't sit down, they would say, and talk to them about the plan of salvation, but I can get them to you, and I say, well, bring them to me, and I'll talk to them. I would love to have people doing that. I would love for you to be the person to get them to me. I'll talk to them. I'm, my trouble sometimes is getting that person. And I've known people who could get invites, could, could invite people, but then you know, they couldn't speak publicly. They were really good private, but they couldn't stand up. So everybody's got all these different abilities. I have to be the type of person that examines my experience and then says, there's some things I can do, and I know I can do that. And put that to work in, in, the, Lord's, in the Lord's service. So David looked at his background experience. You know, maybe as a shepherd, he used stones a lot. You know, maybe he's out there and he's having to get some of those uh, sheep in line, so he pops them with a stone every once in a while. That might have been the case. It made him able to fling those stones. Be angry with sin. There is a reason God calls it sin, and there's a reason that God is angry with sin. And we need to be angry with sin. I think we've gotten to a point in our country where we're just kind of like, we're used to it. In Romans chapter 12, verse 9, let love be without dissimulation, abhor that which is evil, cleave to that which is good. It means you're supposed to be sick with it. It's supposed to distress you. And I'm not talking about worrying yourself unnecessarily. You know, there's, there's some things we can't do. I, I can't do anything about all that that's out there. I can do stuff in my own atmosphere, my own influence. But I have to be angry with sin in that I do what I can to combat sin. Another thing is, don't be afraid to use unconventional means. And I'm not talking about the idea of ignoring God's Word. I'm, I'm talking about within the liberty of God's will. That think about what God is telling us to do you know, you look, at, you look at Paul, and you realize that Paul was going to the synagogue. Well, Paul was going to the synagogue because he had a Jewish background and because he understood that when you went to the synagogue as a male, they were going to let you stand up and speak. And that would give him an opportunity to preach the gospel. Now, I'm not talking, telling you to go to the synagogue. I'm just using that as, as an example of something in the past where one used what we might consider unconventional means to have an opportunity to teach the gospel. Whatever those means might be in your own personal life, there may be some opportunities. I've known brethren in the past to do things like put a tract in with the bill that they were paying. Some people do bumper stickers. You know, some people have uh, uh, Bible studies on the Internet that's live on Thursday night, 8 o'clock Central. Uh, there's all sorts of ways that uh, people do things. So what you have to do is look and see is there a way that maybe it's not being used that would be a means that I could go ahead and be involved in the Lord's work and, and spread His Word. Don't allow others' negativity to discourage you. When you think about the situation with respect to, to David, we have uh, verse 
11, where when they hear the, uh, of chapter 17, verse 11, Saul and all Israel, they're all dismayed at this whole situation. And then in verse 24, the men flee because they're afraid, and then his brothers chastise them. So, he did not let what others said. Let someone try. You know, I don't think you want to do any door knocking. It doesn't work anymore. Maybe you're right. But we got someone out here who wants to do it. Let him try. Go for it. If you need any help, ask me. See what happens. How do I know that this young man who wants to do it might not have some success? I don't know. Don't allow others' negativity. Now, again, we're talking within the realm of God's Word. If you're going to do something dumb, then yes, stop that person. You know, I'm going to hang off the bridge with a sign. No, we don't want you to do that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about within the realm of things that, in effect, can be done. Look at what God's already done. All you've got to do is go through God's Word and see all these incredible... You know, God is the God who, when you think it's over, He says it's just starting. God is the God who, when you think that He's dead, no, He's going to be alive in a couple of minutes. You just wait. God is the God that when someone gets swallowed by the great fish, they're up on dry ground later on. And God is the God who can take a young man with no experience and defeat a mighty giant. That's the God that we serve. So there's nothing that he cannot do. Believe in his power. It's endless because God is the real slayer of giants. The narrative that is provided here by God is proving his word. And what he is telling us is don't evaluate things by physical means. Evaluate things by what his word says can be done. God chose the man to go and to do the job that needed to be done. And so whatever giants there are in your life, whether they're spiritual, whether they're emotional, whether they're physical, if you're faithful to God and you do the little things that you can do, eventually they all begin to add up and you find that you've been successful. Now, I don't know. I'm just throwing this in as something to think about. I don't know if there was a specific reason that David that God provided for David to use stones. But I want you to consider this verse in, in Leviticus chapter 24. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 14 and verse 16. Bring forth him that hath cursed without the camp, and let all that heard him lay their hands upon his head, and let all the congregation stone him. And he that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation shall surely stone him, as well as the stranger, as he that is born in the land, when he blasphemeth the name of the Lord, shall he be put to death. Well, what did David do? He stoned him. Now, I don't know if that's the reason why. I've read some commentaries where they want to talk about David's skill and that David knew that he couldn't put the armor on and couldn't... I don't know if that's all the situation. I know God says this happened, and I know God had said, if someone blasphemes me, you're to stone him. And that's, in effect, what David did. Is this the reason God wanted it done? I don't know, but I do think it's a very interesting thing in looking at God said, this is what needs to be done, this is what David did, and here's the end result. It came about that God, God, he did what God said in effect needed to be done. God's will was done, it was done his way, and David was simply the instrument, and that's all David is saying. The battle is the Lord's, I'm just his instrument, and I believe if God will use me, then it can be done. We don't know what can happen in life. We do know who's in charge. We know that God's in charge. God raised up a shepherd boy, in effect, to become king. And he raises up sinners to become his children. That's what he does with us. He changes us so that we take on the appearance of his son so that we could be with him for all eternity. The good shepherd defeated Satan so that you and I can live eternity with our Lord. There's lots 
of challenges that face us in this life. We have to be convicted that God is who He says He is and that He's going to help us to defeat the ultimate challenge. And the ultimate challenge is of being faithful unto death that we might receive a crown of life. And if you'll believe that Jesus is the Christ, if you're willing to confess Him as such, repent of your sins, and be baptized for the remission of your sin, God has promised that He'll take away all of your sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. He'll cleanse your soul spotless and free. He then claims you as His child, and He brings you into His household. You become a child of God. God is your Father. And heaven is your inheritance as an eternal home. And then as a child of God, if you've got sin in your life, God says all you need to do is repent of that sin and pray to Him. And if you will do so with all sincerity, God will forgive you. God wants everybody to be in heaven. And God is working his plan now. The question is, will you be part of that plan? And I hope you'll have a positive response. And if we can help you to be obedient to God this day, please let us know while we stand and while we sing.